Right, episode 25 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. We're back for a little bit more of an exploration of amphibians versus invertebrates. Yep. Yep, round two. So we did an episode... Oh, what was it? Episode... I haven't got a clue which episode it was. Something in the teens about um, invertebrates. What were they even doing? I can't quite remember what it was even about. It was spiders oh, that's eating right. frogs. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was basically like this uh, This episode where we talked about times when invertebrates turned the tables on amphibians. And rather than amphibians eating invertebrates, it went the other way around. And so we got um, we got an email from Yannick, didn't we, about this? And uh, yeah. expressing his disappointment that we hadn't covered these two particular papers about uh, beetles eating amphibians so we decided we'd go back uh you know in the fullness of time it has been a while and um cover these two papers which fair play to yannick they are actually pretty awesome they're pretty brutal is what they are mate yeah so i was looking at well <laughs> you, i will say do we want to just dive into yeah, the first well, paper yeah, yeah, and yeah. then yeah, because um, because I know what you're going to bring up in a second. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll save the anecdote for the actual correct time. The first paper is uh, is Wizen and Gasseth, 2011, an unprecedented role reversal. Ground beetle larvae, Coleoptera carabidae, is it Coleoptera or Coleoptera? Yes. <laughs> Leave that as it is. Then lure amphibians and prey upon them. So that's ground beetle larvae luring amphibians and preying upon them. Published in PLOS One. Um, yeah, delightfully open access, so go and check it out. Well worth a read. And uh, some of the supplementary material, as I'm sure we'll get into, is pretty grizzly. Oh my gosh, the supplementary material. Yeah, there's really no need to read the paper. You can just look at the look at the videos. Just, just watch the videos, and the whole thing is... Well, I mean, the, you know, the paper does elaborate on it. It does. So before we get too much into the paper, just like we're a herpetology podcast, so there's sort of no prior knowledge about invertebrates expected. Uh, I don't have. Well, any. I know they, they don't have backbones. They don't have backbones. No. Yeah. They That's don't. All I know. They have foot bones. D- n- what? <laughs> they don't. They have exoskeletons. <laughs> I think. Um, they're sort of unlike us. We're squashy on the outside and hard on the inside. Bugs are hard on the outside and squishy on the inside. Yeah, some of them are squishy on the outside too. Yeah, some of them are just all around squishy. Some of them are just... There's none that are just purely hard though. Every animal has to have a squishy element. <laughs> That's basic biology, that is. <laughs> but Oh, no, it doesn't have a squishy element. Yeah, that's a rock. <laughs> You're organic. That's a st- no squish. That's, yeah, that's a stick. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah... Um, Ground beetles, this family Carabidae, they're this large, described as a cosmopolitan family of beetles. It's not because they're avid socialisers, it's because uh, they're sort of very widespread and very variable in their appearance. Um, so this family Carabidae, there's more than 40,000 species in, a, in one family. Um, 2,000 of those are in North America and 2,700 in Europe. Um, the rest are elsewhere, obviously. So yeah, it's a massive family. It's one of the 10 largest families of animals as of 2015. It's just insane. Big, big families. They're incredibly beetle-looking like beetles, too. Mm. Like, when I think of, ah, yeah, beetle, pretty much think of 
one of these guys. Yeah, they're probably slightly more jazzy than what I would expect is from an average beetle, but... Um, well, all right, fancy beetles. Yeah, they are. They're definitely like, you know, they've got the six legs, the antenna, the three sections. The beetly body. Yeah, like, yeah, they look... Yeah, they are... You're right, they are an archetypal beetle. Um, mm. So in this paper, they're talking about two different species. The genus is Epomis, and the two species are... Dejiani and Circumscriptus. And uh, Epomis Dejiani, I couldn't find common names for either of these. Did you stumble across any? I didn't even attempt to because I knew that they wouldn't. Uh, well, they're... Like, they're, like, I feel like invertebrates get a really short end of the stick, don't they? Because it's going to be an entire family is called, like, Stink Beetle or something. And no one knows them beyond... You'd be lucky if the genus had a common name, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing's happened to dinosaurs, though. So, yeah, there's um, there's 420 larvae used in this experiment. The idea behind this paper was to find out what the kind of predator-prey interaction was between this beetle and v- uh, various amphibians. Um, or these two beetles. Oh, yeah, so before we start that, actually, the beetles, we'll talk about the beetles. We said they're kind of classically uh, beetly looking the Dejiani are kind of metallic blue or green. Um, they've got like a striking yellow-orange rim on the elytra, which is the kind of bit that goes outside the, around the outside of the shell. And um, or the elytra is the main shell, I don't know. And then they've got yellow-coloured legs and antennae, and they're sort of less than two centimetres long. They're quite small. Um, yeah, the, the, ones, the ones they used, what was it, five to 14 millimetres in length. Mm. Which, yeah, you know, pretty miniature, really. Yeah, and the larvae are a bit longer. They're up to, they get up to twenty millimeters. But like you say, the one they use in the experiment were a bit, a bit smaller. And they're kind of yellow. They've got like yellow stripes and black blobs, and they're like lo- sort of long and thin and brown. Um, and they've got big, horrible mouse pieces. <laughs> no, they've got very well adapted, uh, surgically precise mandibles yeah well surgically precise is definitely true i mean these larvae the other circumscriptors by the way they look sort of broadly similar to Dejiani. they're sort of much the same kind of a beetle um but the uh, larvae what they do is they sit and they wait and they're sort of ambush predators and they combine this patience with unique movements so they have these f- antenna and also they have a double set of mandibles so they've got four individual pokey out bits that are mouth parts and they kind of wave these in an undulating motion and they draw the attention of the amphibian because obviously like we've looked at previously with the the puff adders using the lingual luring various animals caudal luring using the tail frogs like to bite things that wiggle yeah frogs just they're suckers for wiggling so yeah um you know a much less what we would perceive to be sophisticated animal is you know utilizing this love for wiggles to their advantage and uh yeah they lure the amphibians in and um yeah, then they they eat them as it turns out. Well, they they it's incredible. You watch the the videos and things. You've got this little larvae that can be facing any direction, away from the frog, towards the frog. It doesn't matter. And in the split second that it takes frog from going, oh yeah, I think I might eat that, to biting it, which is supposedly for a cane toad. What did they say? One hundred nine milliseconds. This larvae can turn on the toad or frog and latch onto whatever bit it can get a hold of and that's pretty much 
That's the that's that that's that's their that's their strategy. Yeah, they just sit there, wiggle until they get almost bitten, and then latch on. Yeah, it's insane. It's crazy. In one of the videos, so the the way they did this, um, it was basically another Thunderdome research. It was. So it was. They'd get an arena. Frog versus lava Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah, so so fun. It's nightmarish, really. Yeah, fun to do, but also probably deeply conflicting because you have to watch a load of frog get annihilated by bugs. Yeah, I couldn't do this one. No, I think really, I'd, there's no way. I'd, I'd struggle. I'd have to really switch off, go into full sort of sociopath mode for this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that I'm saying wizard and Gaston are, you know, this is proper science. It's important to point out. But yeah, so um, one of the videos, yeah, well, we were going to say, weren't we? The arena, they basically have just a uh, sort of moss-filled um, circular arena and they put larvae in and then they put a metamorph frog. So they're quite small frogs. Um, they're still a lot bigger than the larvae, but... They're 16 to 55 millimetres. Bang. SVL, the amphibians. And, uh... So, proportionally, much bigger than the larvae, really. Yeah. And then, so they watch them go about their business, and most times, the larvae would eat the frog uh, in a horrible way. So there was one video... That... Most times... Was it every time? It was 100%. Nothing survives. It's ruthless. It's absolutely ruthless. So there's one video where the uh, there's a metamorph of a frog called Pseudepidalia viridis, and um, it's attracted and lured to an ambushing Dejiani larva, um, beetle larva. And you can actually see the frog itself is doing a little bit of toe wiggling, which is thought to be mm. a lure of its own. So the now this was this was something I forgot to look up. But I believe somebody out there just finished up finished up a thesis on that. Because there wasn't there some discussion that it could be like excitation behavior rather than actual luring. No, I I think someone it oh, I can't remember who it was. That's really poor of me. Somebody was saying that they did it with flies, and the flies tended to fly slower with the toe wiggling. Oh gosh, am I? I'm not going to be able to find that now. I've got a horrible suspicion I've actually talked about that on the podcast and can't remember. Maybe, but I think that's what... I think someone did it, like, it's relatively recent. If you know what that is, tell us and we'll we'll put it in the next one. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, this... Um, the amphibian's toe-wiggling, trying to lure in the larvae. The larvae is over there wiggling its face bits, trying to lure the frog in. And um, eventually, needless to say, the frog goes for the larvae and the larvae latches onto its face and starts chowing down, kind of like a face hugger from Alien. And uh, yes, it's a grisly scene. And then it takes a long time for the frog to be eaten. And then only leaves the bones. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's really grim. There's another one where you see the frog eats the larvae, the larvae fails to latch on, and you think, oh, okay, one for the frog. But uh, after two hours of suspicious movements coming from the frog's belly region... The frog vomits up the bug, and it looks a bit worse for wear. The bug is sort of covered in mucus, and it doesn't care though. No, well, yeah, you just turns around and keeps going. Yeah, so it's laying there. It's insane. It's laying there motionless. You think that bug's not doing well? I mean, I would, you know, you don't back it. Yeah, but like you say, as soon as the frog starts walking again, the frog walks over the larvae. The larvae, seemingly dead, springs back to life and begins eating the frog, and eventually killed and consumed it. Yeah, horrible. I mean, that's what's just so nuts. It's the it, the predator prey sort of um, success rate here at this larvae is if it gets attached to the amphibian, that's pretty much game over. That's the, it wins. They're only yeah, 
it's, it's remarkable. It's horrible. The frogs don't have any suitable defence. No, and what's at all? What's really sad about it is the frogs just kind of sit there and seem to take it. Like it must be so painful. But they can't do anything about it. They just sort of get immobilised and consumed. It's 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 dire. It is horrible. I saw some ants eat a frog once, and um, their strategy that they employed. This, well, they ate a frog and a crab in the same sitting, and the strategy they employed for the crab was they all worked together to bite off its pincers, and that rendered it unable to knock them off anymore, except with its legs, which were pretty much ineffectual. And then eventually they had taken its legs off as well. But this this crab, you could see its little mouth parts were still moving. It was like frothing. You could tell it was having a hell of a time, and it was awful to behold. And then shortly after that, the ants turned and found a frog, and um, they cut its legs off and carried the pieces away. And it was alive. God, it's so bad. Yeah, it was oh, it was, gri- it was so grisly. What you like. It was one of those ones where you're like, oh my God, you can't look away, but it's truly horrendous. Yeah. Just, just going in in a little little bug mind. Yeah, that was in Thailand, not in the UK. There's not many places where frogs and crabs co-occur in the UK. <laughs> uh, don't know. Don't suppose there is. One of those sea frogs. Those sea frogs. Um Well that would be that would be boof boofa marinus, wouldn't it? Yeah. Sorry, vanilla mariner. Um God, union taxonomy. Get it right. Uh so Hey, don't diss the cane toads. <laughs> cane toads. Yeah, so um this is very unusual, obviously, this this larvae eating frogs. It's role reversal, so it's very unusual to see uh you know, an animal which ordinarily would be preyed upon, um, doing the preying upon. And uh, there was one example they used in this, which funnily enough, I was talking to someone about the other day. I hadn't heard of this. But um, there was a Barkay and McCade paper in 1988. So it's quite a while ago. And there's these two islands off the coast of South Africa. And um, one of them has got loads and loads of lobsters around it. And the other one has got loads and loads of whelks surrounding it. So they've got these two like wildly different assemblages. And ordinarily, the lobsters eat whelks. Um, I mean, whelks are in their own right predatory. They eat other bivalves and stuff. But um, usually a lobster would just scoff at a whelk and think no. But there's one island where there's no lobsters and one island where there's no whelks. And what the researchers did was they picked up a lobster and just chucked it off the side of the island where the whelks were. <laughs> and, um, you know, the lobster's initial thought was probably, oh, yes, look at all this sea of whelks to eat. Like, this is lobster paradise. But its mind was quickly changed because all of the whelks started to attach onto it and slowly kill and eat it. So that's another example of like predator-prey role reversal, except for that was experimentally manipulated, whereas this one that we're discussing actually occurs out in the wild. Yeah, I mean, it is really remarkable to have a have a presumed prey actively encourage a predation attempt to then turn the tide straight back on it i mean that is just that's pretty crazy i mean because because you get the luring bit of just classic predator coaxing them over but to be actually a legit sort of possible prey item (laughs) they're pretty you know if larvae could be brave it'd be pretty brave yeah it's kind of like i'm trying to think of a good example it's kind of like uh well, that's the trick, is you can't think of a good example because it just doesn't no, really occur. It would just and be like, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it's just it's crazy. There is another example more recently um, from 2014, a Cho et al. paper uh, in predatory mites, like tiny little, tiny, teeny, tiny invertebrates. And um, what they found was that um, predatory mites, which see other members of their species being predated by juveniles of another predatory mite species, when they get bigger, so these predatory mites are seeing this happen when they're young, and if they see another predatory mite eat, <laughs> yeah, they eat their friends when they're young, when they get older and they're fully grown, they fight back with like furious unbridled anger. And they actually are faster at killing members of the other species than ones that have never witnessed this abomination. So they, it's like a revenge movie for mites. Mites. That's what you're getting at. Yeah, they do. They do. They exact revenge, which is frightening. I'll I'll make a note. Never get on the wrong side of a predatory mite. Or if you are going to get on the wrong side of a predatory mite, make, make sure you aren't yourself a predatory mite. And make sure no one sees. Yeah, do it in the <laughs> shadows. Seriously, like, if you're going to be a mite, be skilled with espionage. Sneaky spy mite. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, one reason that they suggested, which they haven't proved, but uh, they were kind of thinking that the frogs don't get wise to these larvae because like a really high percentage of the larvae that they actually encounter won't try and bite their faces off. There's like loads of other beetles out there whose larvae are more or less harmless to a frog. And so it's quite rare for them to come across these horrible face huggers. And when they do, they're just not ready for it because it only really happens once. Yeah, yeah. so you don't expect it to be a massive selective pressure because of the small proportion of frogs being taken in this way, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. if... You know, hypothetically speaking, the Kraken is real, but when it sinks a boat, it has a 100% hit rate. No one would ever know about the Kraken. It would just be boats were lost at sea. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, have you got anything else to say about that one? <laughs> um, only, only if you do go watch the videos, watch out. They're pretty grim. Yeah. Oh, and actually, no, there was one thing. There was a newt. There was a newt that wiggled its tail in one of the videos. And the larvae gets confused, and then it's like, oh, whoa, wiggling tail, what's this? And then it gives up and leaves. Oh, really? Yeah. But was there not 100% death? Of the ones it latched onto, 100%. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless I'm thinking of a video that wasn't actually part of this study. Hmm, there were newts in the other one, but I don't know. There you go, that might be what I'm thinking of. I don't know if there was, I don't know if there was videos for the other one, I only saw photos. Well, I, I saw a video of a newt, and a newt was wiggling about, and the larvae didn't know what was going on, and it sort of gave up and left. Uh... <laughs> Which was like, it it was cool seeing the, the newt, because the larvae sort of comes up to the newt, and it's sort of, I don't know, getting all up in its grill. And the newt starts wiggling its tail, <laughs> and it's sort of like, that's just fantastic to see that work. Because you think, oh yeah, little prey item wiggling its tail, is that really going to help? Isn't it just going to eat anything? And, you know, your predator will just take take the entire newt. It's not going to be a big deal. But to see, see this little larvae, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> tail, what's over there? It's quite, it's quite pleasing, isn't it's it? It's incredible, because it? it's sitting on top of the newt at the time. And you, you can't work out that you're on top of the thing you want to eat. You're going to go work, figure out what that wiggling thing is. 
I think that's really cool. I think it's really pleasing it to see it's like seemingly innocuous anti-predator defenses actually work against actually the working. Yeah, because you think how on earth could that work? It's like really when you when you pick up a frog and it wheezes on you, and you just think, oh, that's slightly gross. It's not going <laughs> to stop you, is it? But <laughs> you know, to see a, a, a newt give a little wiggle and actually get away with it, it's quite nice. Yeah. So you know, there there was some there was a brighter side of that newt that yeah. newt video. They survive. The mutes survive. So, so that paper was looking at the larvae of these beetles, just the juveniles, before they developed into full-on beetles. And uh, the next paper we're going to look at is actually once those beetles metamorphose into beetles... It doesn't end for these these poor no. amphibians. If you were thinking if the larvae didn't get you, the beetles were going to get you. <laughs> yeah, if you were thinking the larvae were bad, wait till you see the be- the beetles themselves. They're savage. So this is another paper by the same team, Wizen and Gassith, two thousand eleven. I'm introducing it, Ben. It's your turn. Do you mind? Do you want to carry on? <laughs> yeah, predation of amphibians by carib- carabid beetles of the genus Epomis found in central coastal plain of Israel. Published in Zookies. Yeah, so like I said, same Thunderdome experiments, and actually this time they had some wild observations as well. Yeah, the Beetle Dome. Yeah, this was actually, yeah, having the wild observations actually sort of make this all all the better, really. Because it's not just, hey, this larvae can do it, it's we know that the beetles do do it. And that's quite a big... Thing. Before we jump into this one, I did also want to have a little mention of a another paper, a more recent paper. Um, yes, Corazia et al. paper from 2017, which is witnessing this in the wild, where the beetles are managing managing to take down uh, Toad Bufospinosus. And so what's remarkable about that, Tom? Bufospinosus. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to go with... I don't actually know what a Bufospinosus looks like, but... Um, it's a big fat toad. Yeah, it's going to be something to do with either the size or the fact that it's got terrible poison. It's got terrible poison. I thought this would be a good time to bring up the terrible poisons again. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this as well, because Bufoviridis has poison too. Yeah, see, this is quite a big deal, really, because there aren't too many things that we know can eat toads effectively um and there's pretty much only a couple of ways that they could get away with this the first is having slight changes to where the toxin actually binds and that's something that you see in butterflies that eat milkweed and uh, hedgehogs both have the very very similar changes to allow them to eat toxic things you know, hedgehogs eat toads and then stick the toxin on themselves. So when you get pricked by a hedgehog, it's even worse. How could it be worse? Well, it's because they put toxin on. Yeah, I know. Just the... say. Yeah. Oh right. How could it be? Ah! <laughs> 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 to be attacked by a hedgehog. <laughs> Clearly, you've never run a mock of a hedgehog. <laughs> no. No, I think no. I haven't seen a hedgehog in years. I saw a few all in one year, and then I haven't seen any since. I see dead ones from time to time. 
I saw some footage on the telly yesterday of Derek the Spineless Hedgehog. Wait, as in he's lacking the spines on the outside or the inside? (laughs) (laughs) Both. Derek the Spineless Cowardly Hedgehog. (laughs) Derek's just not brave. Derek's a bit worse. How can he be brave when he hasn't got any spines? (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, like, is he spineless in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense? He didn't look particularly spineless in a spiritual sense, Imagine if but he... he was most certainly <laughs> spineless in a physical sense. Imagine if it was just a hedgehog that had no backbone, like physically, just was like... <laughs> like some like sort of like blob. squishy slug, spiky slug. <laughs> I don't think that'd work. What's this thing called? Think... Eric the Spineless Hedgehog. Will I see it if I Derek. give it? Derek, Derek the Spineless Hedgehog. Eric the Spineless... <laughs> It was Steve Factual. He was going around seeing all the people rescuing hedgehogs. Oh man, Steve, looking at the hedgehogs. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god, it's ghastly. <laughs> oh, it's so weird. <laughs> it had a had an unfortunate hormonal problem during a course of antibiotics, I believe. Well, he needs to have a word with his GP. Yeah. Jeez, that's. That is shocking. What's most look... horrible about it is the fact that it's not completely bald. That would kind of be more acceptable. It's got like hair on its face and down its yeah. Slank. It's got it's got hair, but just not any spines. Oh. Yeah, that's unpleasant. That is. It just looks like a. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like. Some sort of fat hippo. It looks like a gonad. Is what it looks like. There's quite a few examples of hedgehogs with this phenomenon. It would seem. You sure it's not just multiple pictures of Derek? I don't know. There are ones with like no hair at all. And uh You sure someone just hasn't shaved them? Well, I don't know. This one's called Nelson and apparently he has to put lotion on every day, otherwise it'll dry out. Yeah, yeah, Derek had uh, what was it, coconut milk <laughs> so it doesn't dry up. <laughs> There's one of a hedgehog in a little coat. <laughs> this one's Australian though, it's a different hedgehog. It looks livid actually, it's like glaring at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably because I was put a little coat on it. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway. Um... Hey, hedgehogs aside, second way of possibly dealing with uh, toad toxin is having a sort of impermeable gut membrane or semi-permeable gut membrane that keeps the toxin away from critical parts of the body. And that's something that's seen in cockroaches and locusts. So that's a possible... And then there's a third one, which no one knows really how it does it, but crayfish can eat bufonids with no problem. But if you inject a crayfish with bufonid toxin, it is susceptible. Oh, wow. So they have some sort of uh, way of eating them or something in their digestive tract, potentially preventing the toxin from entering the body in a way that would harm them, because they're not molecularly resistant to it like a hedgehog brutal so it's amazing Crayfish. who knows but these beetles clearly have a mechanism somewhere could be either one of them wait so have people tried injecting these beetles with the neat toxin to, to check that the toxin just isn't beetle specific what, what do you mean well you know like um different toxins and stuff can affect different animals differently right so a lot of venoms mm. for example are specific to particular groups so you can have a, a venom which is really potent to an invertebrate and isn't necessarily potent to a mammal is it could it not be the case that these 
bufotoxins and these toads are much more likely to be predated on by a mammal and therefore their toxins are mammals sort mammal specific Yes, there was. They cited something towards the end. Oh, I've got my quote here. A possible, a possibility of anti-defense. The possibility of anti-predator defense mechanism seems less probable because of the known defense. No, that's not the right quote. <laughs> that that was a quote. <laughs> that, that was not the right one though. There was something they said at the very end of the paper. Let me find it. That basically says. Um, we don't think that it's a specific... Here we go. Oh, a possibility of anti-predator defensive mechanisms seems less probable because the known defense responses of amphibians are not species-specific. Right. Oh, so what I've said is nonsense then. Well, no, it's. I don't think it is nonsense because in my mind that's where I was going until I got to that bit. You know, like, hmm, okay. Well, those reviews are from the 1970s as well. Well, and just because it's not specific doesn't mean that there aren't. I don't know. I, to me, in my mind, I feel like bufotoxins are so general that they affect so many creatures because they affect quite a fundamental part of the cell. Right. That it's more likely they have one of these mechanisms to deal with it than they just happened not to have the mechanism that reacts to this toxin. Okay. Because it's pretty, it, it, if what it affects is the sodium and potassium pathway in and out of the cell, which is quite a big deal, and also can screw with uh, calcium regulation as well. Yes, I remember we've talked about that before. Yeah, and if butterflies need it to eat milkweed, yeah, it stands to reason that it, beetles it, will need it. Yeah, it feels it feels like they can be affected. Mm. Well, so um. Well, that's that's really cool. I always defer to you when it comes to toxins. So, well, that specific toxin, yeah, <laughs> bufotoxin. So, uh, yeah, they um, they managed to eat them despite being poisonous. Another thing um, they found was that they were eating newts and salamanders. Although, well, one of the, one they of the tested newts, two species here, didn't they? Yeah, Triturus vitatus. They didn't want to eat, which is related to our great crested newt, isn't it? Well, and only one of the uh, larvae species wanted would eat those newts too. Yeah, southern scriptus didn't. I mean, that is a crazy. Didn't attack newt. the newts. Yeah, they're cool looking, aren't they? It's got like the crazy hairdos. It's like a dim- dimetrodon. No, dimorphodon. Dimorphodon. The dinosaur with the massive. No, it was dimetrodon. Dimorphodon's the looking pterosaur looking one. Yeah, Dimetrodon. Yeah? Yeah. I'll take your word Big for it. Big fin-looking dinosaur. Big sail. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> either way, that's cool that they eat those. They also savagely fed one of them a uh, really nice-looking salamander, too, like a, a fire salamander. One cool thing about... So the, the larvae that didn't eat the newt, too, um, after they didn't eat the newt, the beetles went off and cleaned themselves. Weird. Which makes me think that the newt didn't taste very nice. Wow. But the other the other beetles ate the newt no problem, so hmm. couldn't have tasted too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that was part of the part of the argument that amphibian defence isn't species specific, so you would expect 
to, to have one species capable of eating the new and the other not because it's got some sort of unpalatable toxin or something seems odd because they're quite closely related i'm guessing if they're the same genus yeah but oof, i don't know oh maybe maybe in one place that species really had to eat newts <laughs> ancestrally so it got that resistant you know it doesn't care mm. so we'll put the um link to the photos in the show notes and yeah viewer discretion definitely advised i'm just looking at the series where they eat the fire salamander and um it's just ghastly like you can see the salamander's trying to get away um and it it can't because the beetle is on top of it and um yeah you know you can see the mandibles like slicing into the flesh and then in the next photo there's like blood coming out and then the next photo it's eating the skin off it and then the photo after that is eating the majority of the meat. It's quite amazing how much of the animal the beetle can consume, given its size. They're phenomenal, actually. Even the larvae in the previous paper, when when I said they were reduced to bones, yeah, that's really true. There is not much left of these amphibians at the end of the day. <laughs> I was looking at these photos it's in remarkable. the office, and uh, Will Perry walked past, who, like you know, is another... Yeah. Hey, Will. Shout out to Will. He sometimes listens. And uh, it was one of the ones of the of the toad being eaten by the beetle. And he was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I'm not surprised. Man. I'm not surprised. That's a normal. That's a sensible reaction. It's truly not safe for work. These photos. They're shocking. And somehow, I I think there's just something about invertebrate predation that heightens the sort of shock of it. I feel like mammal and reptile and stuff, we see it frequently enough, and it's and it's rela- more. I don't know. Maybe it's more relatable, so it's less shocking. Yeah, but the invertebrate stuff is kind of alien in a in a weird way. At least for me, that makes it a bit grimmer. It's just seeing a photo of a toad who obviously no longer has any control of its back legs because a beetle is consuming its back. And it's just kind of got its front feet planted and it's staring stoically ahead, just sort of accepting its fate. It's deeply unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it's because they're still alive, isn't it? Yeah, it's horrible. It's really horrible. But then we have that with snakes. Snakes snakes consume things alive. They do, yeah. And I don't get the same discomfort from snake consuming something alive because it feels like it's done when it's been consumed but it isn't it's still going in there it's because we're just basic biological entities that can only empathize with things that have a face yeah bug faces are hard to empathize with i can't understand them it's quite difficult to so these beetles the two species one of the things they found out about the uh, wild ones was they have kind of overlapping ranges but they're not found together and uh, mm. the authors called this sympatric species with no overlap, which kind of seems like a bit of a contradiction to me. But um, sympatric species, as in species occurring in the same place, yeah, but don't overlap. But they don't overlap, I was like, so they're non-sympatric. Yeah, I don't understand. I think it just means that they're like basically not sympatric, but on a really fine scale. So on a broad scale, they are sympatric. It's confusing. They're invertebrates, though. So who knows? And um... <laughs> you can't just toss that aside saying they're invertebrates. Well, knows? we're not going to get any further with that, are we? It's a confusing thing, but we've explained it. Uh, so yeah, in basically what you say. No, wait. Do you not, wait. You want to talk about don't, it more? Don't, just. I understand what you said, but I'd like it in clearer terms. Okay. So 
On large scale range, they occur in the same place, but if you look closely, they're using different parts of that habitat slash environment. Exactly. If you look at a 20 kilometer square block, then... You'd be like, they both occur in that 20 kilometer blob. Yeah. But if you looked in one of those kilometers square blocks within that 20 square kilometer block, you would find only one or the other, or a mixture of both, but not in exactly the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's fine. So they use some words in this as well. So these beetles are... (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you were going to bring this bit up. Yeah, they're phytophagus, zoophagus, and mixophagus. So that Mm. means they're phytophagus, they eat plants. They're zoophagus, they eat animals. And then they're mixophagus, which I assume means they eat a mixture of stuff. But I couldn't find out what it meant no, either. I, I, the, I couldn't find any anybody who used this word outside of this paper. Well, yeah, no. There was a few other papers where it got used, and I had a glance at them, and they were all to do with carabid beetles. So, like, right. it seems to me that people who research these beetles have come up with a new word without telling anyone what it means. It might. Well, it might be. It might be an invertebrate word. No, because it would. I. It doesn't appear anywhere else. Yeah, but what if they just haven't done research on other invertebrates yet? There's a lot of these beetles to get done. Maybe. Either way, they're mixophagus. <laughs> mixophagus. It means whatever you want it to mean. They like pick and mix. Mm. They only... I don't know. Anyway, mixed drinks. <laughs> mixed bugs. So while we're on the subject of uh, stuff-eating toads, I was fortunate enough to stumble across a new Facebook group this week called... Uh, Stuff you- That Eats Toads. UK Amphibian and Reptile Groups Discussion Forum, um, which is really cool. And a guy called Pete Hill, who works for Amphibian and Reptile Conservation in Wales, shared this photo, which is pretty grisly. And it's basically like, I don't know, probably 50 or 60 dead toads that have obviously gone, because at the minute the toads oh, in the UK no. are all going to their spawning aggregations in ponds, they're all travelling. And it was these 50 or 60 dead toads with like really small portions having been eaten. And then they'd all been hoarded underneath a boat like oh. on the ba- on the bank Heavens? someone had a boat no and well what pete kind of thought was that uh, it was rats and mm, rats can eat an entire toad well apparently a toxic resistance oh really what even yeah. oh really well it says here well pete reckons it's a... that doesn't mean that they would oh, okay, like it yeah, could yeah. be still unpalatable to put them it wouldn't uh, kill them yeah cuz what he said is that um they're, the, the toads are a food source. The rats, the juvenile, the sort of adolescent rats that have been kicked out of the nest. And they know that the frog, the toads are like got glands that they shouldn't eat, but they haven't learned how to avoid the glands properly. So they're just eating like little bits of toads, um, which is obviously causing mm. like a lot of destruction. Well, I mean, if he's seen it being rats and it's rats and it's rats. Yeah. I mean, it could be that they just don't taste very nice. I could totally believe that. But rats do have the mechanism to consume toads without ill effect. Mm. There is quite a lot of discussion about what it might be. People saying it could be mink and stuff, but... Holding holding it under somewhere. That's a ratty behaviour, isn't it? Well, it's a mammal behaviour, isn't it? I don't think... I don't feel like a bird would bother doing that. Because birds that eat just bits of toads tend to just eat them in situ and then... Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm kind of think... ones, you know, like <clears throat> black kites and stuff in Australia. They just pull out the tongue and leave them 
Leon B. Yeah. I mean, why would you not if you're a rat? Got nothing else to do, have you? Yeah. I don't I don't know about the the whether um whatever Minka are resistant or not. Minka are uh, mustelids. Yeah, but I don't think any mustelids have been tested off the top of my head. Mm. Well, either way, Pete seems to think it's toads and he, he kind of alludes to the fact he's seen it before, so either way it's horrible. You mean rats? <laughs> toads. Toad on toad combat. It's actually a battlefield. Oh. Yeah, but um, either way, a pretty grisly image, which um, I'll share a link to. It's a public group. Yeah. Everyone can see it. I'm just going to have a quick look to see if I can see something that... Tasmanian devils, they can't eat them. Leopards, nope. Giant panda, not a chance. Giant pandas? Baboons, nah. Gibbons, nah. <laughs> Capuchins, no. Oh, here we go. The interesting, weird things. If you're an American pika, possibly could. If you were a Chinese hamster, yeah, maybe. Common rat, yep. Uh, deer mouse, possibly. European hedgehog, yeah, we know those guys. Shrew mouse, golden hamster, house mouse. Uh, koala seems to have a setup that appears to be like a snake half halfway like a snake but who knows they're koalas what do you mean they can't um, eat a toad or it can't yeah that's what i'm going through yeah yeah i know uh, but what do you northern mean it's like israel blind subterranean mole rat oh the koala it just has a it just has a sodium potassium pump that half looks like a snake a resistant snake but that probably means that it's non-resistant to be honest hmm. um prairie vole and another type of mouse with a hard-to-pronounce name. So it's quite widespread resistance, but it's not by any means Well, the all the stuff that I was pretty much listing there that was resistant were rodents. Mm. I don't... Oh, ferret. Ferrets... Ferrets are mustelids. At a glance, don't look particularly resistant, but there is... Uh... What is that, lysine? Lysine towards the end, which doesn't look... But again, it can be, you know, hedgehogs are resistant, so that's the sort of thing, is it's not really... You can't really look at um, close relations to give you a good idea. Mm. Well, from toad toxicity, I think that just about wraps up our uh, discussion of carabid beetles eating unsuspecting amphibians, doesn't it? Yeah, we just tended to talk a lot about toads being eaten by things, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, toads just get a bad bad rap on this podcast. Um, but you know. No, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I think we marvel at the wonders of toads. It just happens to be that they get eaten a lot of the time, and that's sort of one of the more interesting things about them is how they get eaten. Guess what happens when you're a meso-predator? But I'll tell you, we could do a whole episode on the adaptability of cane toads. We could do that. There are some wicked papers on how their legs get longer and stuff. Yeah, I've been reading some of that stuff, so that'd be quite fun to do. Yeah. I could just read your master's thesis, to be honest, and I'd be ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's some new stuff out, man. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of very new ones that are really cool. Okay, well, yeah, if you want to hear an episode about cane toads, let us know. Well, I think we'll just do it. Anyway. Put it to the fans. Now, nah, let's put it to the fans. Let's put it to the fans. 
if we don't, well, if, if we don't, don't want cane toads, if we don't want cane toads, then we don't no. do cane toads because uh, well, actually, I can't, I can't have that. We'll probably do it anyway. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> let's move on to our species cane of the bye week. <laughs> it's a cane toad. Hey, the new cane toad, Renella. I don't know. No, 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 novella. Very good. So uh, yeah, a species of the bye week this week. Dias, oi, stay in your lane. What? Stay. All oh, right. <laughs> Dias Haddad Argolo Orico, the one hundredth. This is published in two thousand seventeen. The one hundredth, an appealing new species of Dendropsophus amphibia annua hylidae from northeastern Brazil. Delightfully open access. Plus one. Um, mm. <clears throat> and new last year. So yeah, it's a new species of. Drum roll, please. Frog. You you said that with so. You, you just sucked all the enthusiasm out of everything. That was my best enthusiasm. It was disappointing. <laughs> it's a frog. Yeah. It's actually a pretty awesome no. frog, though. It's a wicked frog. What are you talking about? First, there were there were ninety nine species in the genus. Now there are a hundred. Dendropsophus. Dendro means tree. Tree, or is it rose? Yellow tree. Rhodo means rose, because I'm thinking of rhododendron means rose tree. Yeah, dendro is definitely tree. Quite right, you are, because dendrobates. We talked about that on the podcast before. Yeah, or dendrochronology. Oh, that's so obvious. What back? Yeah, so. Uh, they got big eyes, these frogs, and they're quite cute. They got big eyes. Hmm. They're incredibly cute. They're remarkably good-looking frogs. Yeah, yeah. They've got sort of. Um... How big are they? They the males average at twenty-seven millimeters, whereas females are like thirty-four millimeters. Oh, so they're probably little diddlers, and yeah, um, yeah they change color too. So in the daytime. Um, the sort of dorsal background is dark brown and it's got yellowish white blotches which are more like big stripes um, and they're kind mm. of surrounded by dark caramel brown stripes and uh, the thighs are orange the groin is like bright yellow but at night the dorsal background lightens up to like a dark yellow and the caramel stripes become less evident so they become like these really striking yellow and white brightly coloured things they're really awesome looking little frogs. And like I said, these They're giant stunning. eyes right in the front like of the face. Pinstripe frogs. Yeah. They look like clown frogs a little bit, actually. A little. Yeah. Just in terms of like how awesome looking they are. Um, I would actually say it's very similar to a clown frog, actually. But uh, yeah, they're from eastern Brazil in Bahia State. And um, yeah, they're really cool looking. What do we know about their ecology? Not a lot, I don't think. Uh, not much. What do I have written here? Uh, they're cooling in temporary ponds and using surrounding shrubs, usually between 30 and 150 centimetres of height. Hmm. So it's basically frog found near water, sits in some shrubs. Yeah. You know, pretty, pretty, uh, normal. Yeah. But what's their name? So they are called Dendropsophus necronastes. Necronasties. Yeah, go on. Deaf 
inhabitant <laughs> or dweller. That is brutal. Basically, because they were found near a cemetery. Yeah. Really cool name. Although, I mean, it is cool now, but that place isn't going to be a cemetery for long. Yes, I suppose so. No, yeah. But, you know, it's still super it's cool. Not really, it's not really a legacy name, but I tell you what, it's not going to be one you forget. Mm, that's true. Necronasties. Yeah, it is really cool. Death Dweller. And it, yeah, I suppose it doesn't really speak of the habitat particularly, does it? Like, it's cool, but really, if we're being harsh about it, it could be more useful. <laughs> yeah, but what's quite cool is that um, I, this is I still a... Like it. You know, the fact that they were found near a cemetery, in the one way, actually, it is cool because it describes their kind of tolerance of disturbed environments. Potentially, yeah. Because um, yeah. this area... And it also possibly suggests that they are consuming people's souls. <laughs> yeah, because this area's got sort of plantations and pasture lands around it, although, yeah, they weren't that disturbed, these ponds. But, um, yeah, they they don't seem to have any protected areas around them which is kind of a bit worrying um mm. yeah yeah what was also neat was it wasn't just uh your normal uh molecular and morphological they did do bioacoustics so these guys are distinct in terms of their cool as well which is nice i could not find the actual recording that doesn't seem to be in the supplementary material of the paper, which is a little bit of a shame. But there are pictures of the call. An audio spectrogram, if you want to see that. I love hearing with my eyes. Yeah, see, that's the real shame, isn't it? Because if there was a recording, we'd play it right now. Can anyone look at an audio spectrogram and be like, oh yeah, that's that. (laughs) Like... (laughs) What? I bet you I bet you yes, people can. Somebody does exist. But those people are not me. Yeah, it's not me at all. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, I mean if the recording does exist out there on the paper and I've just missed it, I'm disappointed. No. I just had a little while you're sake, speaking I couldn't, and I couldn't find see it. it. Right. No. Which is a shame, because you know, that's what plus one really excels at is throwing a bunch of really cool supplementary material like videos and stuff. But hey, whatever. Yes. You can't have everything, I guess. It's still a really thorough paper, like you say, and it's well, it is know, really cool new species, really inventive name. Um, and they've got those sound recordings, so, you know, I'm sure if anyone was studying frogs and wanted to hear them, they'd provide them, no worries. Yes. It's, it, it just seems like a missed opportunity is all. Yeah, yeah. When they have put a lot of supplementary material up already anyway. <laughs> yeah, there is a good amount. So. Cool. So, um, yeah, I reckon that's... Uh, that's a wrap for these little frogs. I think so. I think so, yeah. Do we have anything else to mention? I haven't really got anything else to mention, I don't think, that I can think of. Did you want to mention the thing that you forgot to mention last time? I've forgotten again, what is it? Reviews. Reviews? Oh, yes! That's right, yeah. So, um... If you're listening to this podcast on a podcast app or if you've got Facebook or anything like that and uh, you like us on Facebook, um, it'd be awesome to have a few good reviews just because it helps people find the podcast. Like you don't even have to write a lot. Just make sure you fill out five stars. <laughs> you don't want any four star reviews. 
<laughs> this polio cannot be improved. Um, yeah, but joking aside, oh, any yeah, any reviews would be awesome because uh, it just helps us kind of get more listens, which is why we do this. You know, this isn't a money making endeavor, but it'd be cool to have more people hearing it. The only thing I wanted to mention, as I search desperately for it, is the there was a paper out recently about uh, chytrid fungus yeah and some species shifts in disease dynamics in a tropical amphibian assemblage are not due to pathogen attuneation 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 right um by voels et al which is basically the first bit of good news i've heard about chytrid in a while where there may be some recovery in some populations potentially, and it's not due to changes in the pathogen as such. Yeah, there's like some loose suggestion that the amphibians are adapting. Yeah, which is all, everybody's all been like very like, mm, be careful. Yeah. We don't know how, uh, you know, mm, who knows. But it was nice seeing something that wasn't complete doom and gloom to do with Kitrid. Yeah. So, yeah. I felt that was worth bringing up just because. I doubt we'll do another Kitrid episode anytime soon, no. but this is worth mentioning that there may, you know, there, uh, there's maybe a little bit of hope out there. It's very, very early days. Yeah. Very, very early days. And it certainly that. will not save the frogs, this sort of thing, because guess what? Frogs are friend by a lot of things, not just the Kitrid. Yeah. But, um, yeah. They, I shared a, an article about that as well. So if you're interested in reading more about that, there's an article in one of the sort of mainstream science publication papers like not a scientific article but like a news one so scroll down the facebook page for about i would say a week to 10 days and you'll find it <laughs> <laughs> and i will put the actual papers reference in the show notes of course cool sweet well uh yeah just uh our usual plug for the patreon if you would be so very kind as to donate to us and help the podcast keep going um just any as little as a dollar a month would help us pay for our hosting fees we still haven't got those covered yet that's that's half half a dollar an episode yeah and you get reward um get to ask questions (laughs) yes you get a really nice reward uh yeah so that'd be great and uh yeah if you want to get in touch with us herphighlights at gmail.com or facebook.com slash herphighlights or at herphighlights on twitter or patreon.com slash herphighlights such a wealth of communication avenues you'd just be overwhelmed by it all yeah it's a lot yeah thank you as always to our patreons that exist already Jeff yes, and thank you actually awesome thank yeah. you yeah uh yeah that's about it so um in two weeks we'll be doing another episode we don't know what it's on yet um no we don't maybe it could be on cane toads yeah we could do cane toads i mean i'm we just <laughs> <laughs> wow that's a that's a soft no oh <laughs> god we do snakes can't we do snakes? Haven't we done snakes for... We've had two episodes now which haven't been on snakes in a row. I feel like we need... I feel like there's a big portion of snakes that we've missed. Mm. Maybe it's time for a python episode. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That'd be fun. Ponderous pythons. I really want to do an episode on uh, Kandoya, the sort of uh, 
New Guinea and surrounding islands. No, Papua and surrounding islands. Boas and like boas of the sort of Pacific islands. But there's not. Let me guess, there's been very little research done yeah, on Yeah, there's guys. nothing to read about them, unfortunately. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Hmm. Well, then we'll do it on sunbeam snakes. Oh, yes. That'd be really cool to do. Do uh, Ed's paper. Yes. That, I bet you that's the only paper published on sunbeam snakes in the past 20 years. Yeah, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's badass. It is only a paragraph long, but I reckon I could talk about it for quite a while. Well, how about this? How about we do a tropical uh, snake combat? Oh, <laughs> I know what you're doing. Actually, I'm not doing what you think I might be doing because I was partly saving that other... Uh, okay. We're... Why are we just talking about this nonsense? We're ending it here. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> said our thank you. All right, all right, let's do it. So uh, thank you very much for listening and have a... Thank you all. ...fantastic weekend whenever it arrives. <laughs> Whichever weekend, make sure it's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Cheers. Bite his freaking head off.